Father, we love you and we need you. And and Lord, I, I thank you that we don't just need you. We have you. You are a God who has made yourself available to your people. That all who would call on the name of Christ would be saved. So Lord, would you stir our hearts to praise you this morning? Would you stir our hearts to seek your face, to desire you? Would you, would you stir us to legitimately and intentionally step into this week of prayer and fasting and to make it more than just a nominal, marginal blip on the radar of our lives? Father, the reality is if you don't empower us by your Holy Spirit. And there is no eternal significance to anything we do. So fill us, I pray, with your Holy Spirit's power. Cause us to be a people gladly dependent on you. And Lord, I thank you that we're not the only people of God in this community. And Father, I ask that you would bless Corky and uh, Georgiana today. Thank you for my friend and the partnership we get to have in this community. Would you pour your presence out among them and may they know and love and live and proclaim the one and only gospel of Jesus Christ and go on mission, empowered by your spirit into this community this week. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the body of Jesus Christ, not only in this community, but around the world. And your church is being built by your power and we praise your name in it. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen, amen. If you guys have your Bibles, would you turn to Joel chapter one, Joel chapter one. And there's no shame in you using the table of contents if you need to get there, okay? I I would tell you that it's somewhere around Amos right before it, but that might not help you much, right? So Joel chapter one, and let me just just ask, have you ever had that feeling? You don't need to answer this out loud, but you ever had that feeling that you you were missing something? Like something important, something essential. And I realize that even as I ask that question, there is a wide spectrum of answers that we might give to that. So on one end of the spectrum, you might have someone who says, man, my life is pretty good. My job is stable. My marriage isn't perfect, but it is certainly not falling apart. I feel like my kids are doing well. I just think life is is going well, but I, I do have that feeling there might be something more than what I already have, something beyond what I'm currently experiencing in my life. For, for those kind of people, I was trying to think, what, what does that look like in their life, that there must be something more? And, and one of the things I thought about was maybe the moment that you say would, uh, you'd sit in a movie and you would watch one of those really inspirational movies and you would see that moment when the main character realizes their dream and they have the thing that they were going for the whole movie and it's that exhilarating moment in in a movie, you, you all know when Rocky is raising his hands in the ring after Clubber Lang, Lang, Rocky fan. Okay, you guys, you guys are with me. You guys know that moment, uh, you, that feeling of exhilaration, that feeling of exhilaration when, when the national champions of the NCAA football season were crowned this year. You know who I'm talking about, the UCF Golden Knights, baby. You know that feeling of exhilaration. Yes. You're welcome, Neil Mizell. He brought me this sweater this morning and dared me to wear it. So there, it kind of, it kind of almost fit in, bro. So, so, so you know that. And you sit there and you watch and you, you're exhilarated. You feel that. But you, you know something deep in your heart. Something's missing there. That, that thing where you say, there's, there's something that's not quite there in my life. As good as it might be, something's missing. 
On the other end of the spectrum, you have the people who would say, I'm the exact opposite. My life is a wreck. My marriage no longer exists. My kids are alienated from me. I don't have a job. I'm losing my house. I am absent of the most important things. I don't have peace. I don't have joy. I don't have exhilaration. I don't have a deep sense of meaning. And you know something's missing because you feel like every important thing is missing. So I don't know where you might fall on that broad of a spectrum but I do want you to know something. The Bible teaches that all of us have been designed to draw life from God himself. It's it's a, a picture that Jesus gives us in John chapter 15 where he says that we are like branches that are, be, that are being connected to Jesus Christ like a vine so that the very life of God, the exhilarating, joy-filled, precious, glorious, meaningful life of God himself might flow in us and through us as we are connected to Jesus. God has intended for us to have a fullness of joy and peace and love and meaning in our life today because of the work of Jesus. And here's what that means, guys. It means that when we encounter those moments in our life where we say something of that is missing, like, I, don't, I don't have that. What that means is that we're being called to receive the life that God has given us through Jesus from Jesus and nowhere else. Are you guys with me? That's that, that's that stirring that you feel. My family and I recently watched the movie. That's where I got this, this idea, this, this movie about a guy who realizes his dream. And I'll tell you, I sat there, I watched this movie. It was exhilarating. I was enjoying it. It was so much fun to see somebody get their dreams come true. And as I sat there, I felt the exhilaration rising up within me. And here's what started in my heart. Man, that feels good. I started thinking, that feels good. And then here's what I thought. Thank you, God, that I have that very thing infinitely greater because of Jesus, right? It's Jesus calling us to be connected to the life that he gives. And and then here's what that means then. It means that there are subtle ways in which we can drift away. We can wander away from the life of God, the fullness of life itself. And I want us to look with that in mind at a passage that says we are called continually then to return to God, to keep on coming back when we feel like something's missing. The answer is return to God. So let's look at Joel, if you found it. I gave you enough time. Joel chapter one, and listen to this description in Joel chapter one. Verse four says, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust Has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Stop right there. That is the description of how many of you feel after hosting family for the holidays, right? That's how my parents would describe our visit to Ohio. What Andy Kay didn't eat, Mia ate. What Mia didn't eat, Logan ate. What Logan didn't eat, Emily nibbled on because she's healthy. And what Emily and Mia and Logan and Andy didn't eat, there wasn't anything thing in the house that Titus didn't eat. That's that's how my parents would describe it. Seriously though, here's what this is. Here's what Joel chapter 1 verse 4 is. That is the description of a nation that had wholesale wandered away from God being God. 
That they had wandered away from the life that God had designed for them. They had wandered away from centering themselves around God and they began to look for other things. As a matter of fact, what you can see is you can read the rest of the Old Testament prophets and you find there are various ways that these people had been subtly wandering away from God. And there, there are three kind of categories that I was thinking about as you, as you look at this, these, these books like Ezekiel and, and Isaiah and Amos and Jeremiah and Habakkuk, the, the, the books that Joel references, you find there are several categories where the people began to wander away and they depended on other things to get for them what they should have been depending on God to get. Here's one category, protection, protection. That they began to believe this lie that they needed other things but God in order to be safe and secure. So, for instance, as the nations around them started to get conquered by, by kingdoms like Assyria and Babylon, the people of Israel, instead of turning to God and saying, God, we trust you, we know the psalm says that you're a high tower and you're a short sword and a, a shield and you're a defender of the weak, we trust in you, some trust in, in, in chariots and some trust in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Instead of saying that, the people of Israel went down to Egypt and they made an agreement, a, a, a treaty with Pharaoh, and they were trusting in Egypt to do for them what only God could do and providing them protection. The other way is, uh, is, is provision. God had promised he would provide for his people through all times. If you will trust in me, I will provide for you. That is abundantly clear in the scriptures. And it doesn't mean that they wouldn't have to work. It doesn't mean they wouldn't have to plant seeds. What it meant is that God would give them the energy and the strength and the opportunity to do what they could, like plow a field and plant the seeds. And if they would trust in God in the middle of that, God would bless them with the things they couldn't do, like making it rain, right? But instead of trusting in God, and depending on him, these people began to run to other things like false gods and idols and the work of their own hands. And they depended on those things to provide for them what they should have been trusting God to provide for them. The, the last thing is pleasure. You see this all throughout the Old Testament that God has promised that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore and in his presence there is fullness of joy. But these people began to run to other places for pleasure. So specifically in this passage of scripture, or specifically in this, this time in Israel's history, one of the ways they looked for pleasure in other things was through sexual sin. That they were slaves to sexual sin and it came back to haunt them over and over and over again. Instead of seeking God as their source of pleasure, they sought pleasure in other things. And the reason I would spend time talking about provision and protection and pleasure is because it may be thousands of years later, but nothing has changed. People are still people. And I don't think I have to convince you that we are living in the midst of a nation that has wandered away from God. Yes. You, you don't even have to read the news to know. We are a people who have wholesale turned our backs away from God. And here's what I know about us. As people, we are experts in being able to identify other people's sins and not seeing our own. You guys ever felt that? You know what I'm talking about? Then you need to go to Sunday school. So, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I don't have time for that joke, but it was a really good one if I'd have developed it. 
Here's what I want us to do, guys. Instead of sitting in this room and reading an account of a nation that had wandered away from God and felt a sense of barrenness because they had turned their back on God being God and had depended on other things for protection, provision, and pleasure, let's get personal. Instead of being experts about the people around us, why don't we ask God to reveal to us this morning? And so let me just, let me just, let me just describe a couple of things. Maybe, maybe it would sound familiar. There are people who work jobs and buy homes and invest in retirement and their heart subtly depends on that and not God. They depend on their hard work. They depend on the economy. They depend on the real estate market and not almighty God to give them strength and ability and provision. Does it sound familiar? There are people who make plans for their present and their future and they depend on themselves and their own ingenuity and their families and their jobs and their government and not their God to make them safe and secure. There are people who look for pleasure in everything from their family to their favorite football team to their smartphones and their social media accounts instead of seeking the face of God and drawing life and joy from him. And I'm not saying there is anything wrong with jobs and retirement plans and football games and sex and smartphones. What I'm saying is those things subtly and secretly steal our hearts and they become idols to us that we love and we worship and we feel like we can't live without instead of seeing God as the one and only one that our hearts were created to love and we cannot live without. And in that way, those things become idols and they are great evil. And the consequence is the same. Something is missing. As we pursue all of those other things, something is missing. We realize our spouse can't satisfy the deepest longing of our hearts. Our jobs can't provide ultimate meaning. Stuff won't fill the void of our broken, hurting hearts. So we do a couple of things. We either double down and we start to fill ourselves with the fruitless joylessness of working harder and buying more stuff, or we look for another spouse because this one's obviously broken, or we then resign ourselves to say, this is the way it's always gonna be. I'm just gonna live this way. I'm joyless, I'm fruitless, it's a mediocre life I've fallen into, and that's just the one I've chosen, and we learn to live with that dull ache in our hearts that there must be something more, but I don't know what to do about it. Well, friends, let me tell you something. There's a better way. There's a much better way. What do we do? No matter how it is that our hearts have been drawn away from God as God, no matter how quickly and easily we have been pursuing other things to bring us provision, protection, and pleasure, what do we do when we know something's missing? Well, go over to chapter two. Just flip one or two pages over. Let's look at Joel chapter two. And we'll see what God says to us in that place. He says, Joel chapter two, verse 12, yet even now, listen, listen, he's he's talking to people who who have nothing left, right? People who say, I look around, I've got nothing left, man. And God says, even now, even now in that place when you've got nothing left, Return to me 
with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? a grain offering, and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Stop right there. Here's the question. What do we do when we feel like something's missing, when we feel like something has come and devoured our joy, our hope, our peace, our love, our satisfaction, and our fulfillment? What do we do in those moments? We return to God. We repent from filling in the voids of our heart and our life with everything else, and we return to God. We turn our backs on the sin of trying to seek from other things what only God can provide, and we return to God. I heard about a little boy in Sunday school who said, repenting means you feel sorry for your sins. And then a smart little girl next to her said, yeah, enough to quit. It's pretty good, right? Repentance is a change of heart and mind that leads us to a change of life. It's a return to God from wayward hearts that have loved other things in the way we should love him. And I wanna show you what God says about that kind of repentance, that kind of turning to God in these verses. And I only have a few minutes to get through this, but let's just look at these one thing at a time. Here's the first thing we see. Returning to God is internal before it's external. Okay, look at, look at verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me, look at this next phrase, with all your hearts, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. You notice that? Twice, God specifically targets our hearts. He says, listen, rend your hearts and not your garments. Now, that may not sound like much to you, but back in this day, when religious people were like really stirred up about something, like when they they received bad news or they realized they had really blown it and sinned or they realized how great God was and how much they stunk or whatever, when religious people felt that way, they would tear their clothes like, like religious incredible hawks, just uh, like that, just uh, they just would, that's what they would do, um, which would be weird in this room. So I hope we don't return to that tradition necessarily. Just, uh, look at that. Although I, I do have an extra sweater, thank you, uh, Neil. So that he's saying, listen, here's the problem with that. You can go through that exercise. You, you can you can rip your shirt in half and not mean it. You guys know that? You can rip your shirt and, and not actually mean it. So, so let me get back to a, a tradition we might be fo- more familiar with. Uh, have any of you ever had the experience where when you were a kid, your parent encouraged you to hug your weird aunt that smelled like VapoRub? You know who you know I'm talking about? The one, like, oh, get over here, honey. You know what I mean? And in that moment, here's what you realize. Something can be happening in that hug that isn't happening in your heart. You know what I mean? Just let me get through this. Thank you, Aunt Betsy, for doing that with the uh, crocheted socks, but get the VapoRub away. You know that feeling, right? You can do that without meaning. And here's what God says. You can engage in all of the external religious displays you can imagine and fake it. And it doesn't mean a thing. Because returning to God is internal before it's external. 
I mean, let me just throw something out here. Uh, Many of us engage in New Year's resolutions, and for plenty of people, it's a New Year's resolution that I'm going to start attending church again. Um, You used to do that, and then you kind of fell out of that, uh, whether it was a habit or a behavior or something that you enjoyed or whatever, just life got in the way, whatever, you just just stopped doing that. And then as we we kind of evaluate our lives at the end of the year, we we realize, man, something needs to change. I need something else. We're we're part of that that, that, that first conversation I had with you guys. There's there's something missing here. And so they intend on coming back to to church. And and I want to say, if that is you, if that's your story, I I cannot tell you how incredibly thankful I am you're here this morning. Um, My New Year's resolution was to work out. I haven't done it yet. So you showed up, kudos. So I'm grateful for that. But you need to know something. When God began to to stir your hearts, when when there was that thing in you that you started thinking, maybe maybe I need something more, and I I think I'm going to go to that gathering there today. I'm going to go to to First Baptist. I'm going to be a part of that. That wasn't just God saying, "Hey, come to a building." That wasn't God saying, "Hey, hey, come to a gathering." Hey, hey, come to an event. That was God stirring you to come to Him. That was God saying, son, daughter, come come to me. Do you realize God was working in your heart before you were walking in this door? God was saying, I want something so much more. We don't return to God by driving to a building and we don't return to God by showing up in an event and we don't return to God by singing a few songs and then muscling through a sermon like this until we get to go to lunch. You guys know that, right? The point isn't that we would come to a worship gathering and not like it. And the point isn't that we would come to a worship gathering and love it. The point is we'd come to a worship gathering and love God. Amen. And that's what he's stirring our hearts because returning to God is internal before it's external. And the second thing we see is this, that what goes on in our hearts then comes out in our lives. Look at verse 12. He says, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. But if you're returning to him with all your heart, it won't just stay in your heart. He says, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. What God is saying is when our hearts begin to be stirred to love him as God, our lives will reflect that. It's one of the reasons why verse 12 says we return to God and it includes fasting because fasting is an external expression of an internal desire for God. The way we naturally want food or whatever the thing is we may abstain from for a period of time, we're saying, God, the way I naturally want that, I want to want you that way. Imagine if you woke up as hungry for God each morning as you are for biscuits and gravy. And I love biscuits and gravy. I'm sorry, now I'm distracted. All I can think of is biscuits and gravy. So good. Let's get that in before the fast starts, babe. Imagine if you woke up each morning and you were more hungry. Um, uh, listen, listen. Uh, imagine, imagine if you were more desirous for God than, than physical pleasure. The way you naturally desire that, what if, you, what if you deeply, genuinely, not in a fake way, you really wanted that? 
You see, what happens is that when God begins to stir that in our hearts, it will begin to manifest itself in our lives. And our week of fasting is a week where we're saying, God, we may not want you that way, but we want to want you that way. We may not hunger for you. That's the point, Father. We want to hunger for you. There's a lot more I could say about that, but what God does in our hearts begins to come out in our lives like fasting and prayer and seeking God's face. Here's the last thing that I want us to see. Not only, not only is, is returning to God internal before it's external, but then what goes on in our heart comes out in our life. The last thing we see is that God then gives us every reason to return to him. Look at verse 13. He says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for. That word for there is saying because. Here's the reason why. And look at the reason. Look look at the reason he gives. Return to the Lord your God for I am going to wear you out. He doesn't say that, does he? Because I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And who knows whether he will, re- he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Hey, hey guys, have you ever treated a really nice person or a really good person poorly? Okay, since you're all liars, I'll tell you that I have, I have. There have been times in my life where I have been a, a real jerk. <laughs> I have. And there is something that has welled up in me when I have done something wrong to someone who didn't deserve it, who was a good person, and that thing is called shame. I'm ashamed. If you've ever done something like that, you know that feeling. And, and here's how, what it feels like. You were the one who was wrong. You, you showed yourself to be an idiot. That's a Greek word. It means that you're not, you're in the wrong. You were that guy. And, and what happens in your moment when that, that kind of residue is there from a relationship and you're gonna go someplace and you think that person might be there, right? You wanna avoid it. Like, I don't wanna, how are they gonna respond? How awkward will that be? I don't know what to say. Shame keeps you from returning to them. Well, 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 what about when we talk of how we've treated God? Many of us feel this sense of shame in us because the reality is that we have treated the most beautiful, glorious, wonderful, satisfying perfectly good being in all of creation, like an expendable relationship from elementary school that we were embarrassed about when we got to high school. That friend we wish no one knew we were friends with. In other words, me in elementary school. We, we've treated God that way. And he's glorious and beautiful. And we have turned our backs as a nation and as individuals on God and we have literally loved money and entertainment and free time and cars and houses and jobs and sex and fishing and surfing and sports and other people's acceptance more than we have loved God. And when we really think about it in those rare moments, we are ashamed. What would I do? What would I do if God showed up today in this room and I had to face him face to face? What would it be like if I died this moment and I had to give an account to God 
for the way I've spent my time and my love and my desires and my pleasures and I've squandered them on everything but him. What would it feel like? And in those moments, there's this this thing in us, this shame that says, how could I come back to God? What do I say? What, what do I bring? And in this passage, God gives us something. He shows us something. He tells us, you want to know what it'll be like? You want to know what it would be like if we had a change of heart that led to a change of life? You want to know what it would be like if we, as people, returned to God? You know what it'd be like? He would show us grace and mercy. He's slow to anger and he abounds in steadfast love and he will bring a blessing. Look at verse 14. It says, he may bring a blessing or leave a blessing behind him, a grain and a drink offering for the Lord. That might not jump off the page at you, but here's what's going on there. The people of Israel at this time were expected to worship at the temple of God. And here's what that meant. If you came to the temple, you needed to come with an offering. An offering that showed your sorrow over your sin and your pleasure of God in his worth. You wanted to show God you are worth more than this offering and I offer this to you because I'm, I'm sorrowful for my sin. So if you came to the temple and you didn't have an offering to bring, you might as well not come to the temple in their minds. And here's how the book of Joel opened up. We read it. What one locust hadn't eaten, the other had eaten to the point where there was nothing left. You know what that meant? They had nothing to bring to God. These are people who were so foolish in their sin, they had squandered everything and they had nothing to bring. And you know what God says? Hey, if you will return to me, I will provide the offering that would please me that you don't have to bring. If you'll return to me, I'll show you so much grace and mercy that you can come empty-handed and I'll provide your sacrifice. Does that sound familiar to anyone in the room? This is a glorious foreshadowing of Jesus. Because Jesus is the ultimate offering. That we in our sin and our shame and our squandering, loving other things and self more than we love God, we we come to this point in our life where we have nothing left and we have nothing left because of our own foolishness. And we come back to God and we say, what would we bring? I have nothing left to please you. God says to us, I've already provided the sacrifice. I've already provided the offering. When God sent his son Jesus, he was sending an offering onto this earth so that when Jesus would die on the cross for our sin, so he would die on the cross for our sin, he would pay the payment for our sin and he would bear our shame over our foolishness and our lack of love for God. He would bear our shame so we wouldn't have to. And though we are empty handed, we come into the presence of God in the name of Jesus. And do you know what he gives us? Mercy and grace. Steadfast love that never changes. Yeah, we've blown it. That's why God gave us Jesus. And that's why we gather around the Lord's table this morning. Because all of us are missing something. Whether we can articulate it or not. All of us are robbed. Sin has robbed us of joy 
and peace and life itself. And we have nothing to bring to make it right. And that's why God gave us Jesus. So that if you will return to God and say, Father, I want to love you the way I haven't loved you. Even as his children, we would say, God, I, I, want, to be, I want to be stirred to return into your presence the way that I haven't been in your presence before. We don't have to come with shame. We can come in the name of Jesus who bore our shame. And so we have felt like it would be very appropriate that we would enter into this week of prayer and fasting by observing the Lord's Supper together, by saying what we most need to to have and satisfy and sustain us is Jesus himself. So if you would, would you bow your heads and close your eyes and let's enter into a moment where it's really just, I pray the Holy Spirit in us as his people. And I wanna, I wanna ask you there just in reflection, would you ask God to expose the ways in your life that you've been depending on some other thing to be for you and do for you what only God can do. It might be your spouse or your children. It might be your job, your plans for your future. It might be the pleasures of entertainment or sports or sex. Ask God to reveal, to expose to you the ways you've been depending on other things to give you life when only God can be that for you. As God may reveal that to your heart, would you agree with God about it? Would you say, I agree. Those cannot be idols to me. Those cannot bring me life. And would you thank God for mercy and grace as you turn from them and ask him to show you his merciful love. In a moment, you're gonna take this bread in your hands and that bread will represent the body of Jesus that was punished, that was lifted up in shame on a cross so that you would never have to be punished and you would not have to live in shame. And would you thank God for Jesus? As we continue in a spirit of prayer and consideration, I'm gonna ask the deacons to come and distribute the bread to us as Christ's body.